Did you know that you can help us produce new seasons of our podcasts and audio series? At Studio Chenta, we just launched a new series of audiobooks based on our podcasts, and they're currently for sale. There are many titles available from romantic comedy to horror, true crime, communication and linguistics, food and lifestyle, migration stories, and much, much more. Available in Spanish, English, Italian, and French. Check out our full catalog at ochentestudio.com slash audiobooks. And find the titles on apps like Libro.fm, Apple Books, Google Play, Storytel, BookBeat, and on your favorite audiobook app. Thank you so much for supporting our work. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's only room in the lifeboat for me and the curry. Yeah. Hi, this is Kiona. And this is Luis. And we're your hosts of How Not to Travel Podcast Season 3. Fasten your seatbelts and take your seat at the table. And this season, we're traveling around the world from our dinner tables to see how cultural exchange contributed to some of the world's most famous foods. This week, Japanese curry. I know that I've always eaten Japanese curry, but also I'm Asian. Uh, yeah. When was the first time you've had Japanese curry? The first time I had it, I was I was a teenager. I can't remember exactly what year, but I had this Japanese friend. Her name was Yukiko, and she's Mexican, but her, her parents are Japanese. I remember that once we went to her place, me and a few friends... Uh, and we had Japanese curry there, and it was just the most delicious thing. And you know, I had never had anything like it. And I wanted to make it myself again, but I couldn't find the ingredients. All I could find was something called Indian curry or curry powder, Indian style. I actually bought it and tried to make something with it, and then I noticed that it tasted nothing like what I had tried there. And so I was a bit frustrated, right? Because like, where where can I ever get this again? You know, it felt like this unique moment in my life. And that at that moment, of course, I was a teenager. I didn't know any better. Right. But I thought like I was never going to have it again because <laughs> it was just such a one time thing. You know, <laughs> it was like the experience of a lifetime. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. My I guess I I've always grown up with Japanese curry. I am originally from Hawaii and Hawaii is packed with Japanese people. And I never called it Japanese curry. Actually, it was always referred to as beef stew. And so I would always say like, mom, can you cook beef stew? And she would cook it and it was Japanese curry. So you can imagine my surprise when I came to the United States and I was like, you know, ordered beef stew and not Japanese curry came out. <laughs> like something completely different. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't thick. It was like liquidy and it was like large chunks of beef, mostly beef, less vegetables and definitely no rice inside. And I was highly disappointed. And I guess for us, like Japanese curry was always like a something that you get after the beach. It's served um, in little trucks all over the island. Um, and it's definitely served in a styrofoam cup. Like if it's not in styrofoam, it's not real. Almost like a, like a snack, you know, yeah. a very portable sort of snack. Exactly. And always eaten hot. And then you always have the option to put hot sauce on it or sriracha or chili pepper sauce. Um, and also curry itself comes in different spicy packages. So you can get mild, you can get extra spicy. And you like the extra spicy. Always. Yeah. <laughs> and it always came in cubes. So I never knew curry was like, if you want to make curry yourself, by the way, Japanese curry is like one out of the three things I know how to make at my house. Uh -huh, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but it always came in cubes, and I didn't even know curry was actually a powder. Yeah, curry originally was a powder, but yeah, but the Japanese curry that we know today is made in like this paste, right? These yes, cubes. exactly. So when I saw curry in powder, I mean, my stepmom is Palestinian, and when she said asked if I wanted to chicken curry, I saw her pull out this huge basket of uh powder and i was like right. what is that and it was curry which is so different from what i'm used to so it just kind of made me interested like there's so many different kinds of curry and what like what the heck like japanese curry is so different from all the other curries that i've ever had do you know what place claims curry as their national dish india one would think but in fact japan is a place that claims Curry as its national dish. I would never have guessed. And Japan is actually not the only place to do that. Where else? The UK is another country that Ooh. claims curry as maybe not the national dish, but definitely a national dish. Wow. So everyone else is claiming what I thought was an Indian invention. Well, my Indian friends definitely have told me like, there is no such thing as Indian curry because exactly, curry yeah. means something else. I kind of forgot. Exactly. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. Curry definitely, you know, exists in India, but it doesn't really refer to a dish like you wouldn't order an Indian curry, as you said, right? Curry is rather like a form of describing a certain mix of spices. Oh, so it doesn't, like, it can change. Exactly, yeah. You would have different spices like turmeric, uh, cumin, coriander, cardamom, garlic, ginger. You know, there's so many. Right. Garam masala and all of these different spices. And, of course, they vary by region and they vary by dish as well. So you wouldn't prepare the same dishes with the exact same blend of mixes. Did you know that curry is one of those foods that arguably tastes better the next day? It turns out there is actual scientific evidence to back this up, especially in foods such as soups and thick stews that have many ingredients. For example, garlic, onion, peppers, and other condiments not only react with the proteins and starches in food while cooking, but continue to do so while refrigerated. So the more time the ingredients get to blend together in the meal, the more flavor they release and the tastier it can get. Just make sure to reheat your food in a skillet or pot over low heat or in a low temperature oven. And even though it's not the easiest option, avoid the microwave. It can dull down the flavors. And then what's the point of waiting a whole day, right? Curry itself comes from the word gari, in Tamil, a word that basically means spice or relish, and also something to accompany with rice. The rice is already a fixture of it since the beginning. So how does this thing that doesn't really exist in India the way we commonly think of it arrive at other places in the world? Right, but like specifically a dish that they're referring to. It all has to do, of course, with colonization. So when the British controlled India, ruled over India... They brought all of these ingredients and also techniques to England, and the South Asian population in England started to grow as well. A lot of people were leaving India and moving to, to the UK. And so this is when a very uniquely British phenomenon started. 
the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s, which is the Curry House. Wait, there's a house is just for curry? Kind of, yeah. So Curry House, it can even be somewhat of a pejorative word, but it is a common sort of shop or restaurant or basically a, a small place to have a quick lunch. And all of these places are usually owned by... Indian or by South Asian families, and they serve curry. So you're saying that these curry houses just popped up everywhere all over Britain? Curry houses had a sort of a working class origin, right? So there were a lot of people who left India or Bangladesh, and their jobs were sailors. They usually were sailors or merchants, and they set up shop in the UK. And then it became particularly popular in the Victorian era. And this was in part because of Queen Victoria's bond with an Indian servant. So she actually developed a taste for Indian curry as well. It's kind of shocking how many things we like globally because Queen Victoria liked them. So Queen Victoria is the original influencer. Exactly. <laughs> and, and you know, isn't, isn't she also why women traditionally wear white as a wedding dress? I have no idea. But regardless, Queen Victoria is responsible for many very specific elements of our everyday lives and our taste. And this includes curry. In promoting curry in the UK, Queen Victoria was basically promoting her imperial agenda. So you know how India was often referred to as the crown jewel of the British Empire. I have a question though. So whenever I go to Indian places and they measure the spice, my favorite um, food truck in Austin literally has a thermometer and huh. the top says brown people spicy and the <laughs> bottom says white people spicy. And so in general, like Indian dishes are pretty spicy, which I love and I know you love spicy as well. Yeah. But how the heck did these British people eat spicy food? And I know they didn't like it. They didn't. And I think that illustration that you gave us of like brown people spicy and white people spicy is so on point because this is actually the moment where curry starts to become a dish for one, right? As opposed to a very vague and abstract form of referring to very specific blends of spices in India. And this is also the point where curry in the UK lost almost all of its spice. Going back to the curry houses, they were owned and operated by South Asian people, but they generally catered to white British people. And so this was the sort of place where you went to for something a little bit spicy, but not too much. So like just enough for it to be fun, but not too much for it to be, of course, well, too much, too spicy. Okay, so I get how it traveled to England and it became a dish at that point, right? But how the heck did it get to Japan? The popular Japanese curry that we know today, this stew with vegetables and meat, arrived in Japan specifically by way of the British Navy. So Japanese curry is basically British curry, which is different from Indian curry. But is Indian curry eaten in Japan? So, well, there's actually two stories. First, Legend has it that curry was introduced to Japan by way of a shipwrecked British sailor picked up by a fishing boat, right? And so this guy was apparently picked up and then he brought it to Japan. And it's a nice little story or analogy to talk about how it arrived in Japan. 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't imagine him being like, okay, of all the things I'm going to save on the shipwrecked boat, I'm going to take my curry with me. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's only room in the lifeboat for me and the curry. Yeah. The British Navy, by outright not serving any form of English food, they managed to keep it sort of standardized. And so the Japanese Imperial Navy did the same thing, basically. So they learned it from the British Navy. And then the Japanese Navy adopted the exact same thing. And they did it for the same reason. So they didn't serve any particular regional Japanese food so as not to offend or go against the tastes of people from other regions. They adopted curry as basically their Navy dish. And even today, to this day, the Japanese Navy still keeps a tradition of curry Fridays because curry itself is also a very easy meal to make on mass for, you know, hundreds of soldiers or something like yeah. that. Uh, it's because you all only need like a, a lot of paste and a lot of rice. So it's Yeah, it's so true. It's it, this is actually the reason why I know how to make it is because it's cheap. I just have to buy vegetables and rice and I have my curry blocks and it lasts me for like a week. So in grad school, I was eating a lot of Japanese curry because I only yeah. have to cook it one time. Exactly. So eventually it was thanks to these army mess halls that curry found its footing and it's easily scalable for, you know, large groups. And that is also why it not only was incorporated into troop diets, but also uh, popular in school cafeterias as well. So that's how it jumped from being a purely Navy dish, or that was only eaten in the Navy, to being more widespread. Yo, I wish my school cafeteria would have served us I know, Japanese right? curry. <laughs> I'm like, that, that sounds like the best school lunch possible. I know. I got served like corn and like cardboard pizza. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. I do not miss those cardboard pizzas. Okay. So tell me, how did it actually, how did Indian curry get to Japan? You rarely get stories that are provable of like a single person bringing a single thing and starting a, a phenomenon. But this is one of those. So this is oh, amazing. Oh, shoot. Okay. Why do we not know this man already? I know. Yeah. He's, he's amazing. His name is Rash Bihari Bose. He was Bengali and he was born in 1886. So after finishing high school, Bose applied for a job in the army, but then he was rejected because the British who were ruling over India at the time viewed Bengalis as, you know, not the ideal masculine men that they needed in their army. So this naturally uh, made him resent the British military and the United Kingdom in general. And so he started developing anti-colonial ideas, particularly considering that he was living in a time of a lot of conflict, right? There were the, the partitions of the different countries that we know today and, and regions that we know today in South Asia. Basically, he was in a time where there was this fervent anti-colonial movement developing. Okay. So he, with all reasons possible, rejected the UK and became anti-colonial. In 1912, he became involved in an attempted assassination of a viceroy. So now he was actually being, he was being persecuted by British authorities, right? And so as colonial authorities st started to close in on him, he decided to flee to Japan in 1915. It would make sense. I would flee too, but why Japan? The reason he chose Japan was that he first made his way to the city of Kobe, 
under a pseudonym, P.S. Thakur, and he pretended to be a relative of the Nobel laureate Rabindranath Tagore from India, right? And Rash Bihari Bose had read that Rabindranath Tagore was planning a trip to Japan. And so he decided, now or never, I'm going to Japan now. So he created this fake persona and he decided to flee to Japan. And then from Kobe, he you know, eventually set out for Tokyo. And then he met a number of Indians who also shared anti-colonial ideas. And eventually he actually met with Sun Yat-sen, the great Chinese nationalist who was also in exile in Japan at the time. Okay. So a whole bunch of revolutionaries met each other. Exactly. And they were all hanging out there in Tokyo. He eventually, you know, made the acquaintance of a number of Japanese pan-Asianists. So again, part of this whole political movement that was establishing there. Uh, And he notably met a Japanese politician by the name of Mitsuru Toyama. This guy is important. We'll get to him in just a moment. But initially, you know, Boze was living his life as this other person, right? P.S. Takor. He was in Tokyo. But then his cover was blown when an arms shipment to his compatriots in India that was arranged from Shanghai with the help of Sun Yat-sen, the Chinese nationalist, this arms shipment was intercepted in Singapore. Okay, so let me get this straight. Bose was under this fake name, and under this fake name, he was sending arms to India to help, you know, the revolution, I guess you would say. But in the process, they got found out. The shipment's paper trail exposed his true identity. And then the British embassy in Tokyo, which was acting under the terms of an Anglo-Japanese alliance that they had, decided to sue for his extradition. This man is actually fascinating, like from going to almost assassinating a politician to escaping under a fake identity, to sending arms back to India to them being found out, like did they capture him? Okay, so that's the next part of the story. So at this point, remember that Japanese politician I mentioned, Mitsuru Toyama? So he actually introduced... Rash Bihari Bose to the Soma family, and the Soma family were the owners of a well-known bakery called Nakamuraya. So this family allowed Rash Bihari Bose to hide out at their bakery for several months while everyone was looking out for him. They really must have liked him to let him hide out. I mean, they could have probably gone into some serious trouble. And also, the Soma family's eldest daughter, Toshiko, originally acted as Rashbihari Bose's interpreter, and eventually the two got married in 1918. Thanks to this marriage, Bose was able to, you know, legally live in Japan without fear of persecution. Wow. I'm also fascinated by this family. I mean, they must have been really open-minded. I imagine interracial marriages at the time were probably not that common. Okay, so where does the curry come in? Yeah, I'm glad you asked because <laughs> I swear this will eventually arrive at curry. And in fact, that's the point of the next part. So sadly, Toshiko, uh, Bose's wife, died from pneumonia just a couple of years after Bose got his citizenship. So two years later, Rashbihari Bose decided to partner with his father-in-law to set up a small restaurant on top of the Nakamuraya Bakery. And in this bakery, he started selling Indian-style curry and rice. So this is where the authentic Indian curry came from, because it was legit cooked by an Indian person. His idea was that he wanted Asians, all Asians, to experience India's food and culture, right? And Bose, and this is really interesting, Bose wanted to prove that the curry the Japanese were used to was a colonial invention, 
and this was part of his anti-colonial struggle. He was trying to win back curry from the British. Did you know that curry is actually a key part of yet another national dish? Okay, so we've talked about how curry is now a staple of both British and Japanese cuisine, but there's another very popular food that incorporates this ingredient, the German currywurst. And this story also starts with a fateful exchange. Shortly after World War II in 1949, a German woman by the name of Hertha opened a fast food kiosk in her hometown. It was a time of food shortages as the country was, of course, still recovering from the war, so her food was quick and simple. One day, she stumbled upon a British soldier with whom she decided to trade. She gave him spirits and he gave her two ingredients, ketchup and curry powder. After a few tries, she created the meal we all know today, sausage and fries with a slightly spicy ketchup, and it eventually became a classic Berlin street food. This man tried everything possible to destroy everything colonial and was like, no, all the way up until food where he's still pushing back. We love Japanese curry and it's an important part of our lives and it's such a recognizable taste. And yet this man had very understandable reasons to not like it because it reminded him of that colonialism and of that basically extraction of certain traditions and this development of something different, of something that you associate with India, but isn't really Indian. Right. So I just want to be clear to all our listeners out there that we love Japanese curry. We do not love colonialism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're pro, pro-Japanese curry, anti-colonialism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's so interesting that colonialism brought curry to Japan, but anti-colonialism brought Indian curry to Japan. And actually, you can still get authentic Indian curry at the Nakamuraya Cafe. I was just about to ask that. Is it still open? It is, yeah. It still exists, and it's actually become quite a prosperous business. And they actually also sell curry paste uh, in different flavors, including like the traditional Japanese curry, but their best-selling one is Rosh Bihari Bose's personal Indian curry recipe. I love that. I've never been to Tokyo, but that is definitely going to be my first stop. And that's it for this episode. If you're still hungry for more, stick around and listen to our other episodes this season. How Not to Travel is produced by Studio Ochenta and hosted by Dr. Kiona and me, Luis Lopez. Our executive producer is Lori Martinez. Production and sound design by me and Chiara Sandella. Our production coordinator is Catalina H. Vélez. And our social media manager is Sofia Rodríguez. You can follow us on Instagram at HowNotToTravelPod and at Ochenta Podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter at Ochenta Podcasts and on TikTok at Studio Ochenta. Read more about the show and about our other productions on our website, OchentaStudio.com. Thanks for listening, y buen provecho. Ochenta.